Continuing in the series of sermons by Christopher Love on Luke chapter 11, verse 8. And uh, today I will, Lord willing, do the uh, fifth sermon and part of the sixth sermon. Luke 11:8 partially is, Though he will not rise and give him, because he is his friend, yet because of his importunity he will give unto him. The fourth particular is this. By what helps may a man attain to this holy importunity in prayer? For answer, I shall lay down six or seven theological helps by which a man may come to attain this holy importunity. First, possess thine heart with an awful fear of the Almighty God. This was the ground of David's importunity, as you may see in Psalm 5, verse 3. He saith, My voice shalt thou hear in the morning. And in the seventh verse you will find this holy fear did lie at the bottom. But as for me, I will come into thine house in the multitude of thy mercy and in thy fear will I worship towards thine holy name, holy temple. David came to duty with a strong impression of God's greatness and dreadfulness. So it is the advice of the Apostle that if we would serve God acceptably, we must do it with reverence and godly fear. Hebrews 12.28 That foresighted author, Vitus Theodorus, writes concerning Luther that he prayed with so much confidence as if he had been speaking with his friend and familiar, and yet with so much reverence as one that considered the great distance between God and him. I may allude to that place in Isaiah 60, verse 5, though the words are spoken to another purpose, thy heart shall fear and be enlarged. And holy fear breeds in holy care. If a man once comes to this, that he is fearless of God, he will quickly be careless in prayer. Job 15, 4, yea, thou castest off fear and restrainest prayer before God. A man that doth cast off the fear of God doth soon cease to pray unto God. He that fears God most, that man, will certainly pray to God best. That is the first help. The second, another help or means to get this holy importunity is this, to recollect thy thoughts by holy meditation before thou comest to this weighty duty of prayer to God. And upon this ground we find meditation and prayer to be put together. Psalm 5, verses 1 and 2. Give ear to my words, O Lord, and consider my meditation. Give ear unto my prayer, O God and my King, for unto thee will I pray. pray. David's prayer, you see, is ushered in with meditation. The same word in in the Hebrew signifies both to meditate and to pray. You find concerning Isaac, Genesis 24:26 Isaac went out into the fields to meditate some read it to pray others translate it is likely he did both first meditate then pray be much employed in the work of meditation if you would have your hearts much enlarged in prayer meditate in whose presence into whose presence you come what a glorious god he is before whom you are to appear Meditate in whose name you are to come and to pray, by whom you must have access to the throne of grace. 
Meditate what chief mercies you want and are to beg, what grace you would have strengthened, what lusts you would have quelled, what doubts you would have satisfied, what sins you would have pardoned in a word, what blessings you would have God to bestow upon you. The meditation of these things must needs give a man more scope and stir up a man's affections in prayer. The third help, if you would get this holy importunity, you must recall your thoughts from worldly and distracting cares when you come to prayer. The apostle there, therefore doth exhort the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 7 to free themselves from and rid their hands of the cares of the world and he gives this as a reason that they may attend upon the Lord without distraction. The cares of the world will eat out that good that is in the hearts of men, will rob a man of that freedom and enlargement that otherwise he might have in prayer. Anselm, as he was walking in the field, saw a shepherd's boy tie a stone to a bird's leg. And as the bird fought to fly up, Ever and anon, the stone pulled it down again. The spiritual interpretation that he partly made and that we may make is this. When the soul would mount aloft in prayer and grow fervent, the cares of the world pluck it down and cool it. And therefore, you must labor to free yourselves from these encumbrances. You must do as Abraham did when he went to sacrifice. He left his servants and cattle at the bottom of the hill. So when you go to offer to God the sacrifices of prayer, you must get above the impediments and distractions of this present life. That is the third help. Another way to get this holy importunity is to watch the heart in prayer. Colossians 4.2 Continue in prayer and watch in the same with thanksgiving. There is a watching to prayer and a watching in prayer, in praying. A watching to prayer is when a man watches his heart and sees that he doth not omit duties. And there is a watching in prayer of which I am now speaking. Now there are four enemies that a man must watch against in prayer. First, watch against drowsiness of the body. This is a great impediment of prayer and we have great need to watch against it. And second, watch against a deadness and dullness of spirit against a flat and low temper that is a great hindrance of importunity. Third, watch against satanical suggestions. Satan is always ready to assault thee. He watcheth to disturb and molest you in your prayers. You had need watch to counterwork him. Fourth, you must watch from secular distractions. All these adversaries you must watch against and that is the way to get this holy importunity into your hearts. The fifth help, if you would get this holy importunity, you must labor to stir up all your affections when you come to pray. Thus you find, was the practice of holy David in Psalm 103, verse 1, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, praise his holy name. See how this good man doth muster together all the faculties of his soul, how he calls up all his strength, all that he is or can do to set forth the name of God. So the Apostle Peter 
in his first epistle, chapter 1, verse 13, exhorts those to whom he writes to gird up the loins of their minds. A Christian going towards heaven is compared to a man that is going on a journey. Now, a man that is going a journey, he girds up his clothes together about his loins that nothing may hinder him in his journey. To this, the apostle alludes when he bids him gird up their loins. So the like you have in Luke 17:8, gird up thyself and serve me. It is an expression of a master to his servant. God is our master. We are his servants. We are to do his work while we be in the world. To that end, let us gird up our loins, let us gather our affections together, that we may be the more fit for and the more vigorous in the work. A distinct and ungirt mind is not fit for prayer. In ancient times at the first assemblings and church meetings, the deacons cried, Let us pray, let us attend. There are many that pray and do not attend to prayer. Many pray as if they prayed not. If therefore we would pray, indeed, we must attend to it. We must stir up all that is within us to call upon the name of the Lord. Sixth help. If you would get this holy importunity, then you must store your hearts with fullness of matter. When thou goest to prayer, it is emptiness of spirit that causes deadness of heart. Seventh help, if you would get this holy importunity, bemoan the deadness and dullness of thy heart. This was the course that holy David took, Psalm 38, 9. My desires, O Lord, are before thee, and my groaning is not hid from thee. So it was the practice of the church, Isaiah 63:17. O Lord, why hast thou made us to err from thy ways and hardened our hearts from thy fear? So it was the way that Ephraim went in Jeremiah 31.18. I have heard Ephraim bemoaning himself. Thou chastised me and I was chastised as a bullock unaccustomed to the yoke. Verse 19. Surely after that I was turned, I repented. And after that I was instructed, I smote upon my thigh. I was ashamed, yea, even confounded, because I did bear the reproach of my youth. God doth love to hear his people mourning over and bewailing their wants and weaknesses. And that is one necessary requisite in an acceptable prayer. Bewail, therefore, thy dullness. Consider that prayer without this holy importunity is like a messenger without legs, as an arrow without feathers, an advocate without a tongue. St. Jerome complained very much of his distractions and dullness in prayer, and chide himself thus, What doest thou think that Jonah prayed thus when he was in the whale's belly? Or Daniel when he was among the lions? Or the thief when he was upon the cross? Bemoan your want of importunity if you would get this importunity. And so much shall suffice for the helps or means to get importunity. And so I have dispatched all those particulars propounded in the beginning. I now come to the application of the point. I shall apply it by way of caution to prevent several mistakes in the world about this holy importunity. And there are two sorts of mistakes. There are some that think that they have this importunity when they have it not. 
And there are others that think they have not this importunity when indeed they have it. Both these mistakes I must labor to rectify. First, there are some that think they have this importunity when they have it not. Every man by nature is proud of his own parts and abilities and apt to think that he hath more grace than indeed he hath. And here there are four mistakes, or if you will, four grounds of this great mistake. Many conceit that they have importunity when it, indeed they have it not. First, because they are fluent in their expressions in prayer. Second, because they have some stirring of the affections in prayer. Third, because God gives them the mercy they ask. Fourth, because they pray by heart and not by book. Now, all these are false grounds, and therefore I shall endeavor to disprove them in order. First ground of this deceit is this. There are some that conceive they have this importunity because they have multitude of words and variety of expressions in prayer. Now, this is no just ground for a man to conclude that he hath this holy importunity in four cases. First, in case expressions come from the strength of natural gifts and parts and not from saving grace. A man may have a strong memory or an volubility of tongue and good natural abilities, and yet all this while falls far short of this gracious importunity. And second, in case thou art full in expression but empty in affection. There are many men whose words do outstrip their hearts and their expressions exceed their affections. So did they in Isaiah 29:13. For as much as this people draw near me with their mouth and with their lips do honor me, but have removed their heart far from me. Some men are like boiling water when it boils fastest and boils out the top and there is nothing at the bottom. All their prayers are at the top in their mouth and not in their heart and affections. Their affections do not carry equipage with their words. Third, in case thy importunate expressions be more used in company than in secret, it is a sign thou hast not this holy importunity that comes from popular applause. It is not so with the people of God. Christ speaks to his people, Canticle 8.13, Thou that dwellest in the gardens, the companions hearken to thy voice, cause me to bear it. To show that they, would, that they should not only pray and be importunate when the companions hear, hearken to their voice, when they are in company, but even when, then when they are, when no eye sees them, when no ear hears them, when none is present, but God alone. God expects that we should pray in secret as well as in company. And fourth, in case thy fluency of expressions do make thee conceited of thyself and of thy gifts and to slate the gifts of other men. This is an argument thou hast not this holy importunity. For that makes a man humble and low in his own eyes. When a man comes to despise other men and exalt himself above his brethren, this is a token thy importunity comes not from a right principle. And so I have disproved the first false ground upon which many conceit that they have this importunity. Second false ground. Another false ground upon which men conceive they have this importunity when they have it not is this. 
because they find in themselves some stirrings in their affections in prayer to God. But this is no just ground for that opinion in these cases. First case, in case thine affections are more stirred up for the removal of affliction upon thee than corruption within thee. As it was with the mariners in Jonah, they cried mightily unto God, but what was it for? Not that they might be delivered from their sins and corruptions, but that God would bring them safe out of that tempest wherein they were. And second, in case thine affections be kindled by a false principle as by popular applause or vain glory and not by the Spirit of God. And third, in case thy affections are more drawn out after pardoning mercy than subduing grace. A man whose conscience is awakened may be so far roused with the fears of hell that he may be very earnest to have sin pardoned out of a mere principle of self-love. If the fourth, if these stirrings be fading, there are many that have a flushing in their affections, that have no standing affections in their hearts. They are like a man in a fever, that when the distemper is on him, he may be stronger by far than he is in his ordinary course. Now, this is not the natural strength of the man, but only the violence of his distemper and the decay of nature. Just so, the violence that some men have doth not argue a strength of grace, but a decrease of grace, rather, and so much for the second ground of that mistake. A third ground upon which many mistake is this, because God gives them the mercy they ask. Now they think God would not give them what they ask if he did not hear and accept their prayers, but neither is this a good ground and that for these reasons. First, God may give you a mercy, not as a return of prayer, but as a fruit of his general providence, whereby he doth take care for all his creatures. God giveth meat even to the ravens that cry unto him. The Lord gives to everything their meat in due season. God hears the cries of the meanest of all his creatures in the time of need. Second, God may hear thee and grant thy request in wrath and not in mercy. So it was with the Israelites. They were weary of that government that God had set over them, and they were very importunate to have a king. Nothing would satisfy them but a king. They refused to hear the voice of Samuel and did say, Nay, but we will have a king. Well, God hears their request and grants it and gives them king. Might they thence conclude, Surely their prayers were accepted of God because God did give them what they desired? No. God tells us quite the contrary. In Hosea 13.11, I gave thee a king in mine anger. So in the 78th Psalm, the Israelites were very desirous of meat. God heard them. In verse 29 to 31, So they did eat and were filled, for he gave them their own desire. They were not estranged from their lust, but while the meat was in their mouths, the wrath of God came upon them and slew the fattest of them and smote down the chosen men of Israel. So that God's giving of a man the mercy he wants is no argument to a man to conclude that God accepts his prayers. And third, if God hath heard thee, it may be it is in temporal favors, but not in spiritual mercies. God gives thee a temporal mercy, but he denies thee spiritual mercies. 
It may be thou hast begged riches, and God hath granted thee this request to make thee rich in the world. It may be thou hast desired honor, and thou art raised to places of honor. But remember, thou doest beg Christ, thou dost beg grace and glory. If God doth not give thee these, thou shalt never see the face of God, and consider what will all these do thee good. They will but feed thee fat for the day of slaughter and make thee a sweet morsel for worms and devils. Now consider what benefit this will be to thee to have riches, pleasures, and worldly contentments and they prove a snare to thee. So then it is no just ground for a man to conclude that he hath prayed aright because God hath answered him. That is the third ground. A fourth ground of men's presumption of the goodness and acceptableness of their prayers is this. They pray by heart and not by book. They use not set forms. They pray extempore. But this also is but a false ground. It appears by these considerations. First, it is possible and usual too for men to pray without book and yet without heart too. A man may pray a third way. He may pray and yet neither pray with books nor with heart. He may pray by the strength of natural parts, as I told you even now. Second, a man may pray without a form and yet make but a formal prayer. A formal prayer is not to use a form of words. For that, Jesus Christ did. He prayed three times, saying the same words. A man may possibly use a form of words and yet not be formal. And on the other, a man may be formal and yet not use a form of words. That is, he may pray and yet not have his heart and affections wrought upon in that prayer. Prayer is not a work of the memory, invention, or expression, but a work of the heart. Prayer does not consist in a variety of phrases or change of the method or expression used in prayer, but a work on the affections. God doth not account that to be a prayer that doth not come from the heart and is not accompanied with the heart. And therefore you find this expression concerning the saints' prayers formerly. Hannah poured out her soul before the Lord. And lo, the psalmist, he is said to pour out his heart. And the Israelites are said to pour out their hearts like water before the Lord. So that this proves to be a false bottom and so much for the first use of caution. The sixth sermon. This may be for caution to the godly to prevent the mistakes of those that have this importunity and think they have it not. Here also they have some seeming reasons. I shall name them and withal answer them. Their first reason is this. Others pray better than I, saith the godly man. Others perform duties with more enlargedness. Now, this reasoning is not good. For first, it may be those that thou apprehendest to pray better than thou are of longer standing and larger experience in the ways of God than thou art. God does not expect any more from a man, but according to that measure of grace that he gives the man, and according to his growth and standing in grace. Paul was not at all discouraged because Epinetus was the first fruits of Achaia unto Christ. Romans 16.5 nor at Andronicus and Junia that were of note among the apostles and in Christ before him. 
Verse 7. And if Paul was not discouraged, why shouldst thou be discouraged to see other Christians outstrip thee? It may be they are of longer standing than thou. Second, it may be thou dost judge and compare thyself with others at a great disadvantage. As first, it may be thou dost compare thyself and, in, and thy praying in secret with the praying of others in public. Now, this is very disadvantageous. For in public, men have not only inward but also outward encouragements. And so thorough the corruption that is in all our hearts, they are more drawn forth at that time than in secret. And second, it may be thou dost compare their expression with thine affection. It may be there is more in thine affections than all the multitude of their expressions. Thou art not to compare thy affections with the multitude of other men's words. Third, it may be thou dost compare thyself with others when they are at the best and highest and thou at the worst and lowest. There's a great difference betwixt a man and himself at several times. Now you judge unequally if you compare yourself in that manner. Third, in some cases this may be no discouragement to thee as first, if thou art weaker in natural gifts, Though good affections flow from grace, yet good expressions proceed from the goodness of natural abilities. Second, in case thou art not of as long standing in religion. Third, if thou hast lesser time and opportunities for prayer by reason of necessary cares and encumbering employments. When Jonah was entered into the ship, there was a great storm, and so much that the ship was ready to sink now, all the mariners were at prayer. Every man cried to his God. But Jonah was fast asleep. Now one would have thought that Jonah had been a most stupid man. But the reason was the greatness of his journey a little before, which caused him to be so heavy to sleep. It may be a man that hath less grace than thou may pray better than thou, because he is not troubled with these worldly encumbrances that thou art necessarily engaged in. For God doth not distribute gifts and graces to all alike. God hath not appointed to all that all men should grow in grace alike. To this purpose I may apply Nehemiah 11.17. Mattaniah, the son of Micah, the son of Zabdi, the son of Asaph, was the principal to begin the thanksgiving in prayer. And Bakbakiah, the second among his brethren, and Abda, the son of Shammuz, the third. God doth not intend that all should be alike in grace or gifts. God hath his first, second, and third. One may fall short of another, and yet all have the truth of grace. Yea, all have some growth in grace. Another may pray better, and yet thou pray well. Another may pray more affectionately, and yet thou pray as acceptably in the sight of God. So much for answer to the first reason. Second, many a poor soul may say, I can remember since I could pray better and more largely. Now, if I could pray better formerly than now, I am now grown remiss and want this holy importunity. But this is no sound reason. For first, it may be thou hadst formerly more affection, but less judgment, less experience, less spiritualness in thy prayers. It may be now thou art more found in knowledge 
thou makest a more inward progress in holiness, thou canst now make a more inward prayer to God. Thou hast now more inward communion with God. If this be so, thou hast no cause to be discouraged. God loves a judicious prayer as well as a large and affectionate prayer. You see what you want one way, you make up another way. A young carpenter gives more blows and makes more chips, but an old and experienced workman doth the most and best work. A young musician can play more quickly and nimbly upon an instrument, but an old musician hath more skill. The second, it may be when thou hast more affections in prayer, thou hast more sin in prayer, more pride in thy gifts, more dependence upon thy duties, more censoriousness of others, and many other corruptions that did accompany thy prayers and thy affectionateness in them. Now, though thou hast less affections, yet those other corruptions are in great part eaten out. And third, it may be thou hast not now so many helps and opportunities to keep up thine heart, to stir up thine affections in prayer as thou hadst formerly. It may be thou didst formerly live under the teachings of an able, godly minister. Now thou hast lost that opportunity. And so there are several other helps that peradventure are now taken away from thee. Fourth, though it is true, thou art abated and thou didst pray better formerly than now. Yet ought not this to be a matter of discouragement to thee? First, if it doth not proceed from a voluntary carelessness. Second, if it be not accompanied with hardness and insensibleness. Third, if it be not continued with laziness and contentedness. And so much for answer to the second reason. Third reason, another ground of doubting to the people of God is this. They complain that they have not those enlarged expressions in prayer which God's people used to have. For answer, consider these things. First, this hath many times been the case of God's own people that they have wanted expressions that could not find a vent for their affections. Thus it was with Hannah. She spake in her heart. She was not able to express herself. So it was with holy David, Psalm 77, 4, I am so troubled that I cannot speak. And yet, in the first verse of the psalm, he tells us he cried unto the Lord with his voice. Here was a heart full of prayer, though he wanted utter utterance. And second, it is better to have affections without expressions than expressions without affections. God looks more to the desires of the heart than to the words of the mouth. It may be... What thou wantest of expression is made up in affection. Third, it may be what is wanting in words is made up in life. As thou art defective in expression, so thou makest a recompense in conversation. And that is the best expression that can be. It is much better to live a prayer than to express a prayer. It is good to pray for grace, but it is better to live a life of grace. It is good to pray against sin, but it is better to live against sin. And so much for answer to the third doubt. A fourth ground of doubting is this. Many a disconsolate Christian is apt to say, I am troubled with wandering thoughts, with deadness and dullness of heart in prayer. I confess thy case is sad and to be lamented for. 
And it is just matter of humiliation, yet even here is a matter of comfort. First, if thou dost what thou canst to free thyself from wanderings before thou comest to pray. Second, if thou dost what thou canst to resist these wanderings when you are come before God in prayer. Third, if you be sensible of these wanderings afterward, if you can say you do these three things, your wanderings shall never be laid to your charge. And thus I have done with both these uses of caution. And so I have done with the principal doctrine, which was this, that in holy importunity and earnestness of spirit is a condition required in the prayers of God's people if they expect returns thereunto. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.